Welcome to our internet friends out there in internet land. This is Linda. And this is Glenn. And we have another podcast for you today. And it's a nice one. You're sure, I'm sure glad you stopped by to spend a little time with us and look at another old song of our faith. This week we're looking at a song that we have all come to love to sing. Yes, I love to sing. I'm bound for the promised land. <laughs> well, the events of my life got me to thinking about heaven this week. Now, I can hear my friends saying, that's not new for you, Glenn. And that's correct. I know that. But you can think about something and then you can think about something. I think I know what you mean. Linda, I expect most of our listeners know that I've been under the weather for about four months now. Yes, and during that time, you've been in the hospital two times. Yes, and been to refer to several specialists, and whatever the problem is, my learned doctor friends can't seem to find out what's causing it. Boy, they still are looking. Yes, and this week, I got a scare. You see, my dad and all four of his brothers died of Alzheimer's. It's an awful disease. It was tough to watch that. When they did an MRI on me, they found that I had what was known as white matter disease, which is a result of of uh, small, very small blood vessels in the brain shrinking. Now, by itself, that's not a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, but it can be a symptom. So right there, I begin to think it. Now, I'm not afraid to die, nor am I hungry, nor am I hurry <laughs> to bring death on. But that still brought the possibility to mind. Neither of us are drawing any conclusions yet, but it seems another doctor adding to this report read that about the white matter and concluded that Glenn had a history of Alzheimer's. Now, it turns out that that was his mistake. But here I am reading the hospital report, and this second doctor is reporting that I must have been previously diagnosed with Alzheimer's because he saw that note about the white matter disease. Well, now, of course, this is, this is news to me. No other doctor had talked about that, had no. he? Th- that's right, and my general practice doctor confirmed that later, but my mind g- got, to fa- got to figuring about how long I had before that cognitive decline happened, and what all did I get, uh, what all would I need to get together before all this happens? That sure is enough to get those thoughts going, I'd say. Right. And like I said, the next day, my general practice doctor confirmed that, indeed, one of the doctors had misunderstood the white matter disease and concluded I had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. That was a relief, wasn't it? It certainly was. But I was was bringing this up that... uh, Uh, I might make this point. When we go through life, we think we know how we're going to deal with these kind of things, but most, I think, don't really know for sure. Well, I pleasantly realized that I was not worried about it all that bad. I just didn't want to leave Linda behind, and especially with a lot of things that that she'd never done before and needed would need to do and put a strain on her life. So I began to take inventory of things I wanted to do to help before it was too late. That's very sweet that you think about me that way. Well, it did let me start... It did start to let me think in a new way that I'd never visualized uh, so real before about the imminent and permanent trip to heaven. As I, th- as I thought about this, I thought of the wonderful old song, I am bound for the promised land. And what a joyous thought that was. The song describes it perfectly, for the Bible doesn't. 
On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye O Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. O'er all those wide extended plains shine one eternal day. There's God, the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When shall I reach that happy place? I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's place and in His bosom rest. Glenn, let's listen to Forgive and sing this great old song. Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. So Canaan became known as the promised land. Modern Israel and Palestine encompass the majority of Canaan. For many Christians in the Western world, viewing Israel as the promised land is common and assured language. Many of us learn matter of fact in the in our churches and our Bible lessons, and that God promised the land of Canaan to the people of Israel, and that such a promise extended into the world today. Now, Linda and I have been studying the first part of the Bible this year. We started at the front, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and I went through uh, Joshua, now on to Judges, and we have been studying this this trip they made across the, the desert for 40 years. Joshua sent 
three men for each of those tribes to map out uh, the remaining land and put it in seven divisions. Lots were cast before God and he directed the results to determine the allotment. Proverbs 10 speaks of this. The conquest begins with the Battle of Jericho, followed by Ai, which central, which is, is central Canaan, after which Joshua built an altar to, to Yahweh at Mount Ebal in northern Canaan, and renews his covenant in a ceremony with elements of divided land-grant ceremony, similar to the ceremonies known from Mesopotamia. Tabernacle is a traditional Jewish name for the era, for the area of the South Levant. Rebuilt biblical regions and historical English terms include the land of Canaan, the Promised Land, the Holy Land, and Palestine. The twelve sons from the basic from the uh, form the twelve sons form the basis for twelve tribes of Israel. Listed in order from oldest to youngest is Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Nepethal, Gad, Asher, Ezekiel, Jiblon, and Joseph, and Benjamin. In Joshua 12, 21, we read that Joshua gave each tribe an inheritance to the promised land. The Levites were given a specific piece of land, weren't, weren't giving a, uh, were not given a specific uh, piece of land, is what I was trying to say. But they were given 48 cities and their suburbs from among each of the tribe's inheritance. Joshua was, uh, at first, uh, was the first fierce warrior and he was chosen as a representative from his tribe. Ephraim, to explore the land of Canaan, and was in agreement with Caleb that the promised land could be conquered. The land noticed Canaan was was suited in the ter- was situated. I mean, in the territory of the sovereign Levite. Love it. I guess is a correct pronunciation of that, which today encompasses Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, and the southern portions of Syria and Lebanon. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that the promised land is a type of spiritual inheritance believers have by faith today as we walk with God and obey his will. God's children have a spiritual inheritance today from which they may draw as they live as Christian, live a Christian life and do the Father's will. Canaan became, for a practical purpose, the land of Israel. Modern knowledge of Canaan history and culture is derived from both architectural uh, and cavitations, and from literary sources. Jewish tradition refers to the region of Canaan during the period between the flood and the Israeli settlement. Jews see Canaan as a geographical name and Israel a spiritual name of the land. God instructed Abraham to leave his home and to travel to Canaan, to this promised land, which is today known as Israel. Canaan is the ancient name for a vast and prosperous country 
roughly located in the same place as modern-day Palestine and Israel. The heritage of this land is abundance, flowing with milk and honey. The source behind Canaan, Palestine, and intuitive is, is an intuitively grounded in the culture, nature, and hope. The results allowed that modern Lebanese can trace more than 90% of their generic ancestors in Canaan, to Canaanites. Organic, uh, originally uh, settled as four, back in biblical times, Jericho was one of the most powerful cities in the land of Canaan, located in the Middle East, which is where modern-day Palestine and Israel are located now. The researchers also determined that the Canaanites who frequently appear in the ancient uh, sources, including the Bible, descended from a mixture of the early Levitan population and the migrants among uh, uh, the migrants coming from uh, Caucasus region and and modern day Iran. The name Canaan appears throughout the Bible as geographically suited with, with a promised land. The Canaanites served as an ethnic catch-all term covering various indigenous populations, both settled and nomadic pastoral groups throughout the region of the southwest of Canaan, of, of Levit or Canaan. Under the name Palestine, we know this small country formerly inhabited by the Israelites and which today is part of Acre and Damascus is stretched between the 31st and the 33rd parallel north. On a side note, many early colonists and Immigrants viewed uh, America as a promised land in the wake of uh, brutal religious conflicts in Europe in the 1600s. America responded to the safe haven for righteous, and they righteously opposed, and, and they were exiled. The land was ultimately a place where God could dwell with humans, the place where God's space and human space overlapped. This to me is the main implied reason God created man. When he said, let us make man in our own image, God wanted a created being that had a free will, a will that would be like his, and a creation that he could love. And that creation will love him back with all their mind, body, and spirit. With a free choice. Man, though, chose his own will and selfish desires over God's. Of course, that was the man's failure in the Garden of Eden. God's heart and loving desire has always been to fellowship with man. Well, the Jews were chosen by God to be a particular unto me, is the words used, as the pioneers of religious morality. That was uh, their national purpose. The initial uh, election of Abraham himself wasn't earned like the Abraham covenant. Christ sets no conditions for the meek to receive the blessing. The blessed was the blessing is extended to any who possess meekness, not merely physical descendants of Abraham. Christ equates the inheritance of the promised land to the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven on earth. The promised land of Canaan eventually called Israel, was a fertile land with the brooks and deep springs that 
gushed out of the valley and hills. What was the big deal with the land covenant? How does it relate to the new covenant of our eternal life in heaven? Is there lingering spiritual significance to this certain small piece of land in the Middle East? Would building a temple in the heart of Jerusalem actually usher in a new day, age? Let's take a look back in the scripture and see what we can learn. As we noted earlier, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, and the Jewish people were scattered. There are many passages about the return to the land, and about many there are about as many opinions about what the they might signify. Some people think that God is finished with the old covenant. If we are under a new covenant now, the old coordinates of the promised land should matter. Others think there is a poetic grace in the modern reestablishment of Israel. But the connection of the land to is sentimental. Still others think it's of the uh, trip, to Israel, trip to Israel as an opportunity to commune richly with God at a mystical location. There are a lot of things to consider here. Are we supposed to focus on the physical or spiritual descendants of Abraham? On an earthly or heavenly homeland? Our answers will help us determine whether the land covenant promise has already been filled or is pending. As we read the next few passages, consider the possible combination of factors. To what do these land covenant uh, peripherals refer? A return to physical piece of land? A figurative return to the state of mind? The return of physical bloodline descendants of Abraham to the Jewish state in the old border of Israel? The return of a spiritual descendants of Abraham to a physical boundary of the promised land? In Zechariah 10, 6, 8-9, we read, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back, because I have compassion on them, and they should be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in four countries, They shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In Isaiah 11, 10-12, In that day the Lord will extend his hand, yet a second time, to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elaim, from Shonair, from Habath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In Hosea 3, 4-5, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now let's take a look at the last of these passages. Notice that return may be literal 
Hosea states, return and seek. Seek and find would probably be better worded if it was a spiritual return to God were the intended, if God were the intended meeting. Why is the return mentioned first, then seek? In a literal interpretation, it looks as if there is something calling them back as the first step. Perhaps the whistle call mentioned in Zechariah 10.8, then they seek God's goodness after they return. We may be tempted to rule out the idea that this passage refers to Gentiles, that a spiritual return is implied or that the prophecies have already been fulfilled. But let's continue on now. Return may indicate a physical action and seek a spiritual one. Perhaps the patches had a dual meaning. After all, the book of Hosea concerns that the northern tribes of Israel who have been dispersed into other lands as divided as divine punishment for their unfaithfulness. They were lost physically and spiritually. Ezra Hosea mention of David is taking is talking about David's resurrection in the future kingdom or Christ, who is their heir of David's throne. David had been dead for a hundred years when Hosea wrote the passage, so it was most likely one of these options. This detail is not clear. We need to look further. Let's take a stance right now and presume these passages are pointing toward a physical return to the earthly location and not just a spiritual return in the heart, nor a return to a substitutionary heavenly realm. If it's if this literal interpretation is contraindicated by other passages, we can start over again and consider other meanings. But Hosea was intended writing about a physical return such as a return happened already or is it yet to come. Is God done with the blood descendants of the nation of Israel, as many seem to think? Does the church fulfill aspects of these prophecies by being grafted into the nation of Israel? The answer to these questions, we need to look again at Abraham and the promise he received from God. Abraham did not receive his inheritance of the land while he was alive. How do we reconcile the fact to God's unconditional promise of a new homeland would belong to him forever? The only way Abraham could receive this promise physically from God is to be resurrected and enter the promised land. A mythical interpret a, a mystical interpretation of the land promise is lacking the foundation of the church, considering it obvious that God had promised a physical land. In Acts seven four through five, then Abraham went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Here is Stephen's testimony. We see, we see that through God, though God promised the land to Abraham and his offspring, Abraham never inherited during his lifetime. Perhaps 
Abraham received a spiritual inheritance or a heavenly reward. But how can he possibly take physical possession of the land now that he's dead in the earthly realm? How can he receive and enjoy what God promised to give to him? Can God somehow yet keep his promise? Or did he let himself off the hook by changing terms through the new covenant? The easiest way to resolve these questions is to assume that the land of God's promises was a metaphor for a spiritual or heavenly inheritance. Abraham will not physically come back from the dead and live in the land, or will he? Let's look at a few more passages and try to resolve this question. In Acts fifteen fourteen through 18, we read, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Here is a passage drawn from Amos 9. Let's read a portion. Amos 9 was not included in the Amos quotation. Amos 9, 13-15 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the trender of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Some people believe that God will ensure that the nation of Israel will permanently reside within the promised land. Reading the above passage literally, others believe that God is no longer personally invested in Israel as a gospel-politically entity and assures the promises here have been suspended if it were ever meant as a literal promise in the first place. Regardless of our contemporary perspective, it is crystal clear from the Old and New Testament that Israel was expecting a physical restoration based on the land promise given to Abraham. Israel expected a Messiah who would bring a physical fulfillment of this promise, not a spiritual one. And the early leaders of the church did not put their hope in a spiritual return of Christ, but rather a literal one in his physical return. In Acts 7, Stephen provides a historical summary of the nation of Israel. He describes how Abraham and his offspring, including the singular anointed, were given an earthly land promise that not even Joshua or David would fully realize. For a time, Israel occupied the land as tenants, but they did not possess it for eons into the ages, or forever, as God had promised. What happened here? Well, some scholars say that Israel forever forfeited their inheritance when they failed to keep the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. The dispensational view says that once the Mosaic Covenant was broken, 
God scattered. God started a new age and a new plan of salvation. Establishing the church and discarding all aspects of the old covenant. As we have already seen in Galatians 3, dispensationalism is contraindicated by a careful reading of the scriptures. We will look at other rebuttaling passages later. Even if Christ's death legally fulfilled the blood sacrifice, this did not annul the promise to Abraham. According to many, the New Testament passage, the promise remains open. Abraham's inheritance is here ex- uh, explicitly linked to the kingdom of heaven. Christ exemplifies the whole situation for us in the Sermon on the Mount, where he draws from Psalms 37. Psalms 37.11 reads, But the meek shall inherit the land, and delight themselves in abundant peace. And in Psalms 37.29, it reads, The righteous shall inherit the land, and dwell upon it forever. And in Matthew 5.5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It would seem that Christ's means to assure the the audience that his heavenly kingdom is fulfilled of the Abraham covenant to the meek will indeed inherit the earth and dwell upon it forever. But was Christ speaking figuratively or literally? Let's assume that Christ made a literal statement about the physical land. For this assumption to be valid, Christ's blessing needed to comply with the other circumstances of the land covenant we know to be true. Here are four points of comparison. Like the Abraham covenant, the blessing is everlasting. Continuing minimally until the end of the age or else eternal. Like the Abraham covenant, Christ sets no conditions for the meek to receive the blessing. The blessings ex- extended to anyone who possesses meekness, not merely physical descendants of Abraham. Christ equates the inheritance of the promised land to inheritance of the kingdom of the heaven on earth. One immediate problem with the first point is that there is no clear word for eternity or infinity in the Hebrew language. The root often means age. So the Hebrew speakers would use this phrase forever and ever to describe the concept of eternity. Now let's look at one passage to describe describing time and purpose with the Abrahamic covenant. In Psalms 111, 5 through 9, it says, He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The most important concept of the passage from Psalms 111 is redemption. God has a redemptive plan to save his people and honor the promise to Abraham. God is doing the redemptive work tied to the inheritance. Certain psalms can sound a lot like allegories, allegories, but let's agree with Paul that the covenant to Abraham was not made void and still has an everlasting concept intact. 
Also remember that Israel at the time of Psalms 111 was not an everlasting empire. Even though they experienced some high points under David and Solomon and they received favorable treatment from the uh, Paulinians regarding trade and travel. As for the second point regarding the unliteral nature of Christ's blessing, let's look back on the uh, original promise made to God, made by God to Abraham. The word if is never used. Though it does appear in the Mosaic Covenant that was broken by Israel, remember Paul clearly differentiated between the two main Old Testament covenants and stated the Abraham covenant could not be nullified as it was ratified by God himself. Whereas the Mosaic law covenant depends on Israel's compliance, which is lacking. In our third point of comparison, we note that Christ's blessings seem to be available to a larger pool of people than only blood descendants of Abraham. The change is based upon the the uh, uh, meager of Hebrews and Gentiles to form a second congregation of God's people. New Testament writers tend to refer to God's people not only as Israel, but also the church as the body of Christ or the brethren. This shift is uh, demonstrated by the writings of Paul, especially in Romans 4 through 9. Correction, Romans 9-11. Old Testament language used specific phrases such as chosen people, but the promise to Abraham opened up a broader group of nations that included that included Gentiles. See Romans fifteen eight through twelve. It offers a summary of an Old Testament promise to the Gentiles and states a dual purpose of Christ's coming in the first advent to to confirm the promise to the patriarchs and to bring Gentiles into these promises. The book of Acts starts with a broad deployment of the Holy Spirit, which creates a single congregation, the church of all believers. The Gentiles were officially grafted into the nation of Israel, adopted as Abraham's descendants. According to our fourth point of comparison, Christ meant to equate the promised land with the earthly arrival of the kingdom of heaven. There's a strong correlation of land with the kingdom language in the New Testament. Old Testament believers had faith in the land, covenant being fulfilled someday, specifically that they would be raised from the dead to live in the land forever. This concept carried over into the New Testament, but the word kingdom was uh, also shows up frequently in the New Testament writings. So let's compare New Testament land passage to those translated as kingdom. And let's look at the promised land and the kingdom of heaven. First, it's very clear that Christ created the inheritance to, uh, uh, created and, and inherits the whole earth. We are now called joint heirs or fellow heirs in Romans eight seventeen in salvation. Our enemies, mainly death and the devil, need to be conquered. 
for co-heirs to claim their inheritance of the land and eternal life. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-four through 26 Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In Hebrews ten eleven through 13 we see, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Christ himself conquered death and the devil. Romans 6, 5, and 8. Enabling him to sit down at the right hand of God in heaven. He has not delivered the kingdom to share with his co-heirs, according to those and other passages. The writer of Hebrews provides this summary regarding the land of inheritance promise. In Hebrews, we hear it eleven thirteen through 16 says, These Old Testament saints all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 40 and all these Old Testament saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hebrews eleven forty, for God had provided something better for us, so that they would be made perfect, resurrected together with us. God provided something get better, recalls language from Hebrews 8, 6, a verse that briefly speaks about the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant Mosaic law. We take a closer look on that later. There's a connection to see first. Regardless of whether figurative or literal language was intended, Hebrews 11.39, uh, that we looked at earlier, states that the spiritual and physical promise was not fulfilled to Abraham or any other Old Testament figure mentioned in this chapter. This fact supported Galatians 3 and Acts 7, demonstrates the continuation of a promise. It remains active in the New Testament. Did God go back on on uh, on His oath? No. How can Abraham receive a promise if he'd ever obtained it during his earthly life? The answer, according to Hebrews eleven, is found in the heavenly country and the prepared city. This link of the promised land to the heavenly country is a large bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament language. The promise to Abraham and all the Old Testament saints were fulfilled when they inherit the city to come called the New Jerusalem in that heavenly country. They just need to wait for that Old Testament saint to be complete, to complete the bride of Christ and obtain in the obtained time. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author establishes the theme that the land promise will be its fulfillment when God establishes his heavenly kingdom on earth. 
the book of Hebrews begins by naming Christ as the main heir of the promise to Abraham. He indeed inherited all things, the earth and everything in it. In these days, last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The author keeps building upon the inheritance theme in reference to the promise of God that God made to the past to Abraham. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not at all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Hebrews 4 speaks of rest. But is this physical rest in the land or spiritual? Hebrews 4, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any one of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In 4.2 we see that the nation of Israel lost the conditional promise contained in the Mosaic government because they lacked faith. The gospel presented under Moses contained good news as it was not just above the conditions of the law. The Mosaic covenant was tied to the Abraham covenant as well as we will see further on in the in today's podcast. This is extremely important to the core gospel message, which has never changed and it never will. Christ built upon it, but the underlying message is consistent. In Hebrews 4, 8 through 10, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This reference to Joshua shows that Israel did not receive a total promise of the land when they entered Canaan. According to 4.1, the promise still stands. If the land itself couldn't bestow rest, then there must be another more profound rest to come. This rest only this rest only became possible after Christ finished work on the cross and fulfilled the law. A key question is whether we receive this rest now or following this earthly life. We explore this question a little later on. The short answer is that we can't have rest now with the permanent rest to come. In Hebrews six thirteen through 18, we read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oaths is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Does this heirs of the promise concept refer to Abraham's children are all nations. The promise to Abraham makes clear that all nations will be blessed. Salvation is offered to all, whether through blood or adoption. And so the author of Hebrews links God's promise to salvation. Inheritance is associated with both spiritual salvation and earthly land of promise. How do we tie that together? First, remember that 
Christ is the heir of the earth and the recipient of the land of promise. When reading these passages, we get some sense that there is something about the promise not yet fulfilled. And Matthews eight eleven through 12 tells us, I will tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, whether we read this as a literal or figurative, what is the meaning? This passage describes Gentiles hanging out with the patriarchs of the kingdom, where certain blood descendants of the patriarchs are of the patriarch are banished. Also, see the interesting statement about drinking in the kingdom, Matthew twenty six twenty nine. Following this time, the patriarchs, God began to reveal of his master reveal his master plan through the prophets. At the pinnacle of the nation of Israel's history, David prophesied future days of glory. And generations later, even as the nation Israel descended into idolatry, ruin, prophets declared the end of sickness, disease, and taming of wild animals, the the end of all catastrophes and everything bad. These prophets will be described uh, in relation to other future events later. They seem to be described in a perfect vision of the life on the earth, and they're not bodiless existence in some celestial realm. These promises and prophecies sound like heaven on earth. It is truly God's intent to restore earthly things back on an immaculate, wonderful state. We believe God's promise of resurrection from the dead of the saints will be resurrection itself. And then the creation, the creation of uh, itself. Peter said this, Jesus is the one in Acts 3.21 whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. In Romans, Paul offers a similar teaching. In Romans 8.16-23 the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject, subject to fertility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When God delivered up the territory of the promised land to Joshua, the Israelites, he fulfilled the promise he made to Moses. But his promise to Abraham was not yet fulfilled. Even with the Canaanites rooted, sin remained. No earthly kingdoms can subdue a sin-infested land. Only a heavenly kingdom can drive out this infection. Without a truly righteous king and prince and judge, the land will remain marred in the sinful state. 
the Mosaic Law showed Israel how to have a relationship with God and with other others by living righteously. They agreed to keep the laws and the covenant and turn away from sin, but instead they rebelled over and over. In Deuteronomy 4, 4 through 8, we see, See, I, Moses, have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all the statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Here we see a very important use of the law. It's the gospel. God's word, and in his message to his people and the rest of the world. Just as Israel was called to shine a light in his neighboring nations, we reveal God to the people all around us. So while the law is useful to to curb selfish behavior to please God and maintain civil order, we also reflect God's nature through our behavior. The Israelites as a whole did not reflect God's nature and were not able to possess the land under the conditions of the old covenant. Only God can cleanse the land and offer true rest. He uses due unconditional covenant of redemption. This covenant is, con- is a condition of the promise to Abraham. Through the Mosaic government, God's covenant, God's people provided his people with a set of laws based on grace. By the following by following these instructions, Israel would experience God's blessings and protection in the lands. Through the Abrahamic covenant, God swore an oath of unconditional grace. He established laws governing his actions toward Abraham and Abraham's offspring. The interplay of the law and grace creates a lot of confusion with Christians, but there is a simple explanation that reflects the light of the gospel. Both the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants are connected in that they each contain a land promise. And when When the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant were violated and the contract broken, God decided to make a new covenant. But instead of restoring the previous conditions, God's new covenant reached further back and takes the unilateral format of Abraham's covenant. Once again, he offers an unconditional promise of eternal life in the promised land. And this time, he directly extends the offer to the entire world. He makes a way for even you to be with him forever in the promised land. He only wants the same, he only wants you to want the same thing more than anything else in life. Ask him to forgive you your sin. And then let him take control of your life and turn it over to him. I'd like to talk to you about this if you need more information. And I would be delighted to do that. You could email me if you like. My email is glendawson at twc.com. God has been gracious to allow us this podcast and We're so thankful that we can do this. Even though we've never asked for anyone's money and we're not starting now, we've had help from our audience. 
When our song to played, we receive a small streaming royalty of five cents. So we want to say thank you for listening to our songs. As you listen to our music while you're traveling or working around the house or whatever you're doing, we trust you enjoy the music and pray it's a spiritual blessing to you. Remember you are helping keep our ministry going just by listening. If you don't have a streaming service already to listen to our music for free, just sign in on our YouTube audio channel at https colon forward slash forward slash www.youtube.com forward slash the ad symbol we are forgiven to listen to our songs check out our video channel there too while you're there if you have an alexa or echo say play the music of glenn dawson and listen as long as you like for free if you're not getting our newsletter, go to our website at glendawsonea.com and click on the newsletter. Well, folks, that concludes our podcast this week. We'll see you again next week. Until then, God bless you. And remember, we, we love, love you. you. Bye, Bye for, for now. now.